We were in Colossians chapter 3. Last week I gave you thesis 1. Today is thesis 2 from this passage. Hear the word of the Lord in Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Work heartily or work with zeal, work with passion, work with a commitment, work with a sense of purpose, work heartily. Thesis one last week was people who are heavenly minded work heartily as unto the Lord. He starts off this chapter which deals with how to live the Christian life with these verses. If then you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your heart on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. So thesis number one is that people who are heavenly minded live heartily with zeal with passion, with a commitment as unto the Lord. We go back to the text this morning, and thesis number two is this. People who are looking for the reward, reward, live heartily as unto the Lord. They live with zeal. They live with joy. People who are looking for the reward. The Scripture says this. Work for the Lord and not for men, doing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the inheritance is not only future glory, but it is the present reality of the blessing and favor poured into your life. It's very important. This is an incredibly important concept. It deals with one of the primary motivations for the Christian faith, and it's, it, it, I really want you to get it, that people who are looking for the reward in this life and in the life to come, the blessing and the favor and the happiness and the joy of Christ live heartily. I just visited my parents in North Carolina. My mom is in a convalescent center, um, and so went there with her for a couple of days, wheeled her into the cafeteria for the evening meal. As we went in there, there was a lady sitting there by herself, very small lady uh, with an oxygen tank. Her name was Claire Velma, double name. Uh, Claire Velma was sitting there, and I said, do you mind if we sit with you? My mom and dad, who knew her, so we were talking, and I started asking her questions, and her mind was clear as a bell. I said, you know, uh, where have you lived? She said, I've lived here my whole life in Yadkin County, North Carolina. She says, you, do you have daughters? I have two, or children. She says, I have two daughters. Where do they live? Well, one lives five miles from here, and, and the other lives about 12 miles from here in, in Hamptonville. I said, do you have grandchildren? She said, yes, I have almost four. I, I didn't press her, but I thought, man, it's not a good answer. I mean, you have three or four, five or six. You don't have almost four. You have four. And I thought, well, maybe there's a, a fall off on the communication here. So this morning, I want to be very clear the communication. And that is this. One of the primary motivations for the Christian faith is to do it for the reward. 
in the present life and the life to come, to do it for the reward of the joy and the happiness and the purpose that comes in following Christ. I am so glad that the larger, larger catechism says this question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. I'm so glad the divines didn't say the chief end of man is just to glorify God. But they said the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Do it for the reward. In Matthew chapter 6, Christ gives a statement of the Sermon on the Mount that many of you have read many, many times, and He talks about seeking first the kingdom of God, but he prefaces it by making some of these incredible statements. He says, just, he says uh, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? He says, consider the lilies of the field. Just look at the lilies. They don't toil or spin or labor, and, and, and yet... I tell you that even Solomon, King Solomon, in all of his splendor was not arrayed like one of these. And then he says this, this verse that is one of the key verses in the scripture. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Do it for the reward. Do it, understand that God is good, he loves you, and he is your heavenly father. All these things will be added unto you. Psalm 84, one of my favorite psalms, says, how, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My flesh longs, yet faints for the courts of the Lord. My, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the Lord. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest where she may build for her young near your altars, O Lord of hosts. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose hearts are the highway to Zion. Blessed are those who go to, from strength to strength till each appears before the Lord. And then he says this, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, and he bestows favor and honor. So I, I just step back, and I look at that psalm, and I say, you know, you, you, you glory in the greatness of, of the living God. And it is good. It is beneficial. To me, this is one of the key battleground verses of the Christian faith. Hebrews eleven six. 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards. He rewards those who seek him. He rewards, I believe, he rewards those who seek him with happiness and joy and peace in believing. Behold the goodness of the Lord. Or Romans chapter 8, starting verse 31, it talks about, or the whole chapter talks about the greatness of the Lord. But then it says this. What should we say to all of these things regarding his drawn us to himself and given us salvation? What, we, what do we say? If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So, so, with Christ, we are graciously given all things that we need. Or, or even the theme verse for our vacation Bible school. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him. So I, I say, behold the goodness of the Lord. Behold the greatness of Christ. Now there's a hymn, a scripture song that we've been singing lately. I think it's, it's just glorious. Uh, it's entitled, uh, You're With God in the Beginning. What's the title of it? One with God most high. Anyway, let me just read it to you. The title is, come on, somebody help me out. What a beautiful name. Thank you. The Jeopardy buzzer, though, had already buzzed. It's too late. I want you to know that. Sorry. Anyway, what a beautiful name. It's a great song. The first stanza says, um, you, are with, you are the Word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord Most High. Your hidden glory in creation now revealed in you, our Christ. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. Now, the second stanza has caused some blog furor because people say it's a downgrading of the person of Christ. I don't think it is, and I'll explain it to you. Second stanza, the controversy, the first two lines, you didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. My sin was great, your love was greater. What can separate us now? So, so the, the, the issue is, you didn't want heaven without us. And so people say, are, are, so that, that, that is telling us that there's some deficiency in Christ that he is in some way the eternal God who has no beginning and who has no end. There's some, something lacking in his person. He has to have us to be complete. But that's not the way I read it. The way I read it, and this is, where, is, that, is that in the glorious Trinitarian fellowship in heaven, out of the overflow of the character of God, he loves us. And he wants to join in the joy and the magnificence and the splendor that is, that, that is part of the Trinitarian wonder of the living God by being our King and our Savior who died on the cross for our sins to bring hell-deserving, guilty sinners home. What a beautiful name it is. What a glorious name it is. Behold the greatness of Christ. Behold the beauty of the Savior. Behold the joy of knowing Him. So, so here, one of the primary motivations of the Christian faith is that God rewards those who seek Him with His presence and His power and His joy. And I would plead with you to not just do the right thing. Do that. But as you do the things that are in Holy Scripture, plead for God to give you emotions that rejoice in the greatness of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. John Piper, oh, I love John, this is his byline. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Okay, say it again. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So rejoice. Work heartily. 
Live heartily knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Gave this little paradigm numerous times in the last few months. God is eternal, triune. No beginning, no end. He's God. He is good. He has spoken to us in His Word and ultimately the person of Christ, and He desires our flourishing. He desires our flourishing. What a, what a wonderful, glorious God. And then, this is, to me, this is one of the most important things to grasp. God's desire to be hallowed, Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, and worshiped. And my desire for joy and peace and happiness, I like the word happiness, and, and purpose are intricately united. They can't be separated because God is for us and we're made in his image. And the chief in the man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, if you get hold of that, listen, if you get hold of that, and I struggle with it every day because I'm a sinner, if you get hold of that, Obedience is so glorious. So, First uh, Peter. In First Peter, Peter in chapter one rehearses the wonderful things that God has done for us. He says, "You've received an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed." He says, because of that, be sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. And he says in verse 18, you were redeemed from the empty way handed down to you by your forefathers, not with silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus. A lamb, lamb without blemish or defect. Behold the greatness of Christ, in other words. And then chapter 2 starts like this. Therefore, therefore, get rid of malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn babes, long, long for the pure milk of the word, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. So what I ask myself is, self, are you tasting the goodness of the Lord? Are you tasting the hope that's given you in Christ? Are you tasting it? Are you experiencing it? Are you singing it? Now, I brought this in here so that an object lesson, and so you'll say, man, you'll remember hopefully four or five months, four or five years, what was that orange cone for? Here's what it's for. <clears throat> this represents motivation to live the Christian life. Okay? So let's say from here down is duty. Duty is a good motivation. Do the right thing. It's duty. It's kind of like, just do the right thing. Nothing wrong with duty. Duty's good. But, but duty to me is penultimate. It's not ultimate. See? The ultimate motivation for living the Christian life is behold the goodness of Jesus. Behold the fact that he offers me life. Behold the fact that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Behold the fact that, that, that before Abraham was, he says, I am. 
Behold the fact that he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature, Hebrews chapter 1. Behold the goodness of the Lord. See, if I live primarily or almost exclusively on duty, and, and God bless you for that, I think it's a good motivation. I just don't think you'll sing the happiness of the Lord. I don't think you'll skip occasionally, just spontaneously skip. I don't think that your soul will bubble up with laughter as much as it should. But if, if you understand that the ultimate motivation for living the Christian life is, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Listen, I think you sing. I think you skip. I think you get happy. And, and, and see, the, the world is trying to blind you to this. Let me tell you something. The, the chief ploy of the devil is not sexual immorality, it's not substance abuse, it's not anything else. The chief ploy of the devil is to blind your eyes to the beauty of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And that, that's why 2 Corinthians 10 says, we demolish strongholds and every lofty thought brought up against the knowledge of God. What Paul is saying there is the chief ploy of the devil is to blind us to the beauty and the grandeur of the eternal God whose name is Jesus. So, so I, I just say to you, and I say to myself, I say to all of us, uh, behold the beauty of Christ. Glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. So, so do it for the reward in this life and the life to come. The reward of happiness and joy and purpose and peace and believing. Man! So, so how it works, lead your small group for the reward of the joy of Christ. Serve in vacation Bible school or our children's ministry for the joy of the reward that's found in Christ. Get outside of yourself. Serve and care for aging parents for the joy of the reward found in Christ. Walk beside and care for very difficult children for the joy of the reward that's found in Christ. You see? Wash dishes for the joy of the reward found in Christ. That's what he says. So my favorite preacher of the last century is a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, just a great, he's a great, uh, I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. And anyway, he's a Welch guy that was a physician and was called to be a pastor and became a pastor in London for almost 40 years. But years ago, I was reading a sermon by Lloyd-Jones and he said this, he said, um, I said I, uh, there's a story about a man walking down the path and he meets a woman and in one hand was fire, and the other hand was a pitcher of water. And the man said to her, what are you doing? And she says, well, I'm going to burn up heaven with the fire, and I'm going to put out hell with the water so that men will live with pure motives. And Lloyd-Jones, in his incredibly understated Welch-British way, said, that was a very nice illustration. The only problem was it's thoroughly unbiblical. And he's right. See, the Bible talks about rewards. And so I, I did research trying to find where he got that illustration, and I found it. So it comes from a woman named uh, Rabia of Basra. We know about Basra. She was a, a Muslim mystic, a Sufi mystic, who lived in the 800s. And this is one of her prayers. Listen. Oh God, if I worship you for fill of hell, 
burn me in hell. If I worship you in hope of paradise, exclude me from paradise. But if I worship you for your own sake, grudge me not your everlasting beauty. Once again, that's just thoroughly unbiblical. What I'm saying is the Bible says that we do it in part for the reward of knowing him deeply and fully for the the reward of joy in Christ, for the reward of having a life of purpose that's outside of ourselves. You receive the inheritance as a reward. Now, recently, some people, some very young people, have exposed me to a guy named Jocko Willink. Jocko Willink is a former Navy SEAL. He's written a couple of books. One is entitled Extreme Ownership, and I read it, and it's very interesting. And the other is, I just got is Discipline Equals Freedom, something like that. And he's, a, he's all about discipline and doing the right thing, doing the hard thing, and he's kind of in your face. And he's a very bright guy. His podcasts are very interesting, but Jocko Willing. So they, but one thing he does is that he believes in getting up early. He says, I get up every morning, he says, at 4.30 so that I can sneak up on the enemy and beat him up before he gets me. He loves the early morning hours. And so he'll, he'll, he'll show a picture of his watch, and when he gets up and send it to a friend's occasion, he'll say, I'm getting up now. Can you show the picture of the watch? Because my computer, my little screen's there. You go. So a few couple weeks ago, I sent this picture 4:09 in the morning to my son-in-law Ryan and our youth pastor Van because they, they were already in the Jocko will link. And I said, 4:09, baby. Well, I didn't tell him I had to get up to catch a flight. <laughs> but that's just between us. You don't have to tell them. Um, but you know, just that time. And uh, he's he's very interesting. He's he's fun to. To, to, to listen to. And, and yet, as I listen to him, he's all about discipline. Man, he's, he's good, and I love it. I love it. I, I think of 1 Corinthians 9 with the Apostle Paul, and you know this passage. The Apostle Paul is talking about the Isthmian games. And this is what he says in verse 24. He says, listen, do, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only a few receive the prize? So run that you may obtain it. The reward. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So do not run aimlessly. I, I do not box as one merely beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So, so Paul says, you know, the, the self-discipline we do is for a higher calling. I love it when people go for it. Um, and for example, there are people in this church that have participated in a full Ironman triathlon, which absolutely blows my mind. An Ironman triathlon is you jump in the ocean and you swim 2.4 miles. And then you jump out and you dry yourself off and throw on some bike shoes and get on a bike and you, you ride 112 miles from here to Columbia. And then you get off the bike and you put on your running shoes and you run a full marathon, 26.2 miles. And they do it in one setting, eight to 20 hours. It's amazing. And they do it, and I admire them for it, don't misunderstand me. They do it to get a t-shirt and a plaque. And if I did that, the plaque, the plaque would be on the front door of my house. It's impressive. 
But it, when you do things athletically to the glory of God, it takes on a higher calling, I think. Uh, I brought this book in here. I just picked up this book yesterday, uh, saw a review on it, and uh, said it was worth a read. It's called The Great Stain. It's about slavery in America, written by a person who received their advanced degree from Oxford. So I read about 100 pages yesterday. But, but uh, you look at a book like this, and it's full of, one reason I got it is, is that this person is using primary sources that have never been used before. And, but there are tons of footnotes, and the bibliography is, is eight pages. And it, it's an amazing, but I, I look at this book and the incredible effort it took to write this book. And I go, wow. But when you write a, a book, a, a tome, an academic book, and you do it for the glory of God, it takes on a higher meaning. You see what I'm saying? I use this example, and I don't want to appear to be showing favoritism, but I was at the Southern Baptist Convention recently in Dallas, Texas. And I'm sitting there behind a row of people that come in, they sit in front of us, and they're wearing Arkansas Razorback T-shirts. And so during one of the breaks, I leaned forward, and I said, I'm sorry, you guys must be lost. This is a gathering of Christians, you know. Obviously, you guys are at the wrong convention because you have Arkansas. They started laughing. They said, well, who do you pull for? I said, well, you know, I, I didn't go there, but I generally pull for, for, for Clemson and Carolina, but you know, Clemson if they're head-to-head. And, and they said, and this is what they said. I hear this all the time because I talk football with people everywhere I go. I say, I pull for Clemson. You know what the first thing they say? Seriously, four times out of five. We love your coach. Whenever I hear that, I pray for him. So when you coach the glory of God, it takes on a bigger meaning, and it puts you at a higher place. So, duty is a wonderful motivation, but I think joy is greater. The Gospel Coalition, there's a statement for the Gospel Coalition, keeping shooting on the overhead. This my monitor has gone out, guys. I'm sorry. You do such a good job up there. Thank you for following me. You deserve a medal. Okay, it says the church serves as a sign of God's future new world when its members live for the service of one another and their neighbors rather than for self-focus. Wow. We live for something that's higher and greater than self-focus. Now, there's a statement in the worship guide, and it's from a guy named C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to read part of it to you because I think it's so important. This is one of my favorite statements. This is from a a little book called The Weight of Glory. And halfway down, C.S. Lewis says, This if there lurks. In most modern minds, the notion that, that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. I submit that this notion has crept in from Immanuel Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires, hear that, desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Next paragraph. Just hang in there. Listen. Read it. 
We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward for love, or of love. That is why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for the real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. For example, if you, if we were entering or interviewing a young man who wanted to get married, first of all, you marry in the Lord. Single people, you marry in the Lord. Married believer. But anyway, you're interviewing someone and say, well, why, why, why do you want to get married? He says, listen, this gal that I want to marry, her dad is loaded. And uh, if I marry the end of the family, I'm like the other son-in-law, I'm going to get a job at the office. And the only thing I do is check in occasionally, play golf, and go by every other Monday to get my check. It is a sweet deal. You know what you call that kind of guy? A mercenary. If you say to a young man, why do you want to marry this woman? He says, well, I graduated from high school a few years ago, and at this age, people sometimes get married, so I said, what the heck, give it a whirl. You know, we, you know we call that kind of guy? Stupid. <laughs> but if you're, if you're talking to a young man who's, who's a believer and he's marrying the Lord, he says, well, why do you want to get married? He says, well, tell me what, let me tell you, man, I love this gal. I hate to tell her goodbye at night. She, she makes me laugh. We have fun together. She's, she teaches me things. I mean, she's, she's good for me. And, and secondly, I, quite honestly, I, I want to have sex. I, I'm, I, I, yeah. And, and, I, and I know that marriage and sex, that's where it happens for a believer. And thirdly, uh, I, I really think that it would be a joy to raise children with her. So I that's why I want to marry her. Let me tell you, that is what the confessions of faith say about marriage. You get married for companionship, for sexual fulfillment, and to have kids. So he's hit a home run. Bases loaded, bottom of the ninth. Seventh game of the World Series. Boom. That's not mercenary. If you're married in the Lord, there should be joy and laughter and fulfillment and embrace and happiness. That's what it should be. So, do it for the reward. Now, very quickly, last week, I'm going to do this in about five minutes, maybe seven. Last week, I talked about people who are politically correct and politically calculating and who have no eternal perspective and who live for themselves become barren and cold and really hard to live with. And I said, great commission Christians are, are people who live for the glory of God for the heavenly reward, for the joy of knowing Christ. I said, join the Great Commission. So let me give you some places to hang your hat on being a Great Commission, Christ-honoring disciple or believer. Just, there could be 30. I'm going to give you six very quickly. Number one, number one is a, a Great Commission Christian glories in the wonder and joy of the cross and sins forgiven by the work of Jesus, their substitute. Every day... A Great Commission Christian runs to the cross and rejoices in the forgiveness of sins. 
runs to the cross and rejoices that Jesus is the mediator who has shed his blood for my salvation. I, you just glory in the cross. And what happens is, 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 is the more you glory in the cross and you run to the reality of Christ, the, the, the greater Christ becomes in your mind. I see, and I see this in you guys. I see that, that the, the more you glory in the, the cross, the, the, the more you grow in humility and approachability and kindness. I just see it with you guys. And I think of a letter written by a guy named William Carey. William Carey is the father of modern-day missions. He leaves, he leaves England in um, 1791. He moves to Calcutta, India, that is, that is much hotter than Charleston. Hard to believe. It is. And he stays there from 1791 until his death in 1734. 41 years. Never goes back to England. Lives in Calcutta without air conditioning. Thank God for air conditioning. Buries two wives, buries a child, buries a grandchild. And he writes in his journal when he's 70 years old, the father of modern day missions. Translate the Bible into seven different languages. He says this. I am this day 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness. Though on a review of my life, I find much, very much for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are immeasurable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted his cause, not sought his glory and honor as I ought. Close quote. Let me say this. There was nothing, no secret sin buried in his life. That was just his everyday experience. And I thought, good grief. If that's true of William Carey, what would my annual birthday letter look like? You glory in the cross. You rejoice in the goodness of the Savior. The second thing a Great Commission Christian does, a Great Commission Christian has the intentional, joyful intake of the Scripture. See, God, this is God's Word. God shapes us by the Holy Spirit as we are in the Word of God. So there, there's a, a, a joyful, because I, this is God, and the intake of the Scripture in our life. I was reading, reading through Proverbs, so on Friday I'm, I'm reading Proverbs 22 because it's the 22nd day of June anyway. So I was reading Proverbs 22, and I hit this passage. Listen, and I thought, wow. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. Wow. The reward, see, there's the word, for humility and the fear of the Lord, riches, honor, and life. Then the next verse says this, thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked, Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. And I thought, good. Toils and snares are the path of the crooked, the ungodly. Whoever guards his soul will stay far from where they're going. I thought, God, let me hear that. And that, 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 that the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord and riches and honor and life. Wow. Self, go hard for Christ. Thirdly, there is an intentional desire, an intentional desire to concern for people without Christ as you seek to communicate with them. Man, we need to do that more. I thought last Easter the staff did a wonderful job of talking to us about who are the three people you're praying for and inviting them to come to the Easter services. And it was a great emphasis. We ought to do that every week. 
So who are you praying for? Who in your family, neighborhood, friends, people you meet along the way, who are you praying for to come to know the gospel of grace and the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ? Fourthly, they, a Great Commission Christian understands the incredible importance of personal stewardship, responsibility, which involves finances. We realize we don't live unto ourselves, but we live as unto the Lord. We understand that what we do counts for the Lord. We understand personal responsibility. And, and so we serve for the joy of the reward. Um, I was reading recently about a small denomination in this country from Germany. And this small group, um, if they look at the finances given by people and it appears that someone's not tithing, they'll knock, the church treasurer will go visit them and ask to see their W-2 to see if they're tithing. And if they're not, they'll warn them. And if they don't tithe, they kick them out of the church. I'm not suggesting that. That's why it's a small denomination. You know? That's called legalism. I'm not, but listen, I believe tithing is biblical. I do. Yeah. I believe the tithing is taught in the Old Testament. You give, you give a tenth of your income. I believe it's never turned over or abrogated in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus says you tithe as you should. That's what Jesus says. And it belongs to the Lord. It's a statement of worship. And yet we get inundated with stuff and debt. And I, I say to you, if you're going to be a Great Commission Christian, start working towards tithing if you just can't. Get some counsel. All of us should work. And that, that's what a Great Commission Christian does. They just do that. And I, I thank you. I mentioned a few weeks ago that we were down in our budget, and you've responded. We're still not where we should be. We've got five weeks left, and I ask you to just be joyful givers. I mean, you understand that God loves a cheerful giver. You understand the proverb says there's one who withholds what is justly due and it results only in want, but there's one who gives in excess and it results in more and more joy. See that? Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. Fifthly, a great commission Christian is vitally involved in a local church. I love this church, and I love you people. And let me tell you, the older I get, the more I see that God never intended us to live the Christian life by ourselves. He gave us the church. I need to be vitally involved. I need my community group. I need my man-to-man -man table. I, I need my friends in Christ who have the responsibility to walk with me and love me and pray for me and ask me hard questions if they want to. I need the body of Christ. And if you don't get that, if you just float in and out of church and you don't get involved in people's lives, you are missing out on one of the chief means of growth in the knowledge of Jesus. I was talking to people after the church. We, somebody said, well, we graduated from Reengage. That's our marriage enrichment program. It's 18 weeks. I think it is 18 weeks. And, and they said, we graduated. I said, yeah, you never graduate. We were the first, one of the first people to take re-engage. My wife told me the other day, 
we need to do re-engage again. I said, yeah, I know. I mean, I do. I'm going to need to re-engage till I die. I need the body of Christ to the day I die. I need you people in my life. And sixthly, uh, Great Commission Christians understand the process of, of intergenerational discipleship. You, you, you pass the faith on intentionally to people around you. It's a dynamic process that's ongoing, and you, you commit yourself to a small group, to an individual where you, you seek to build them up, a disciple is a forgiven sinner who's learning Jesus in repentance and faith. We're going to be talking about that more in a few months. But, but, but here's where you hang your hat, you know. Here's where you hang your hat. And thank you for being faithful people. Thank you so much.